together to the book of Romans, chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. I'm going to read and preach verse 10 through verse 13 this morning. Sermon title is, The Gospel is for Everyone. You'll notice the word everyone is mentioned twice in these verses, and the word all is mentioned twice as well. And as we'll see, Paul's underscoring the fact that the gospel is indeed for everyone. The good news of salvation from sin through faith in the Son is for all people. And everyone who believes in him and calls upon him will be justified, will be saved, and will not be put to shame on the day of judgment. This is what Paul is telling us. There's no distinction among people. The gospel is for Jews and for Gentiles. It's, it's a message for Westerners and for Easterners, for rich and for poor. It's a message for all ethnicities, all nations, all language groups. It's a message for every single man and woman and boy and girl on planet Earth. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we're going to think about that together this morning from these verses. But before we begin, let's pray together. God, we thank you for these verses, for these truths, and we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive them now together by faith. We thank you that the gospel is for everyone. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Thank you for bringing the gospel to us and for enabling us to repent and believe in Christ for our salvation. And we pray that you would do the same for any here this morning who are not yet saved. And Lord, equip us and encourage us and excite us about taking the gospel to others, about reflecting Christ and proclaiming Christ in our community and around the world. We pray in his name, amen. Amen. Romans chapter 10, I'll actually start at verse 9 that we looked at last Sunday and read down through verse 13. This is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The structure of the sermon is going to be a little bit different this morning. As you can see in your sermon notes, there are five points for today based on the five fours that are in these four verses. Verse 10 begins with the word four, that's four number one, and I've labeled the subject of verse 10 as heart and mouth. Then four number two is verse 11, Old Testament proof of what's asserted in verse 10 Then four number three is no distinction, four number four, the same Lord, and four number five, everyone who calls will be saved. So we'll work our way through those five fours. 
spending uh, a bit more time on the first one than on the remaining ones. So as we are hanging out in four number one, don't get nervous that we haven't moved to all the other ones just yet. We'll spend more time on that than the others. So four number one, heart and mouth. Reading verse 10 again. Four, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You may have noticed the order is reversed from the previous verse. In verse 9, he had said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So mouth, then heart, following the order of the quote from Deuteronomy earlier. But then in verse 10, the order is reversed. It's, it's heart first, then mouth. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And why is that the case? Well, the reason for the reversal seems to be to clarify the fact that belief in the heart comes before confession with the mouth. Belief in the heart is the root, and confession with the mouth is the fruit. True saving faith starts in the heart before it comes out of the mouth. Now, this is true with regard to sin as well as with regard to faith. With regard to sin, remember what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And he said in Matthew 12, 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, Jesus says. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our words come from our hearts. Our words show and tell what's in our hearts. Nothing comes out of us that wasn't first in us. It starts in our heart and then from our heart comes up and out of our mouth. Long ago I heard a good illustration of this truth. I've mentioned it before. If I had an open water bottle and I shook it so that water spilled out, And then I asked you, why did water spill out? You'd probably answer, because you shook it. That that would not be a wrong answer. But if I asked you the same question, but with a different emphasis, you'd probably give a different answer. If I asked you, why did water spill out? I'm sure you'd answer, because there was water in the bottle to begin with. So yes, in a sense, water spilled out because I shook it, but more fundamentally, water spilled out because there was water in there to begin with. When anger comes out of our mouth, it's not because someone shook us. It's not because someone made us angry. When anger comes out of our mouth, it's because anger was first in our heart. You see the dynamic here? Knowing this can inform our confession of sin to God so that we confess to him not just our sinful words but also our sinful heart. And knowing this can also inform our confession of sin to others so that we take responsibility for our angry words and not 
try to blame others for them. And so that we humbly apologize and sincerely apologize, not just for our words, but also for our angry heart. So what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart with regard to sin, and the same is true with regard to faith, and that's what Paul's point is here. That's what he's talking about here. True faith starts in the heart, and then it comes out of the mouth. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So if it comes out of the mouth, but it's not in the heart, that's called hypocrisy. That's pretending. If it starts in the heart but never actually comes out of the mouth, it was never really in the heart to start with. True saving faith starts in the heart. With your heart, you believe in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And then it proceeds out of your mouth. Then you confess Christ publicly. Then you confess him visibly, verbally, before men. I like the way the Westminster Larger Catechism puts it in questions 72 and 73. Listen to these words summarizing what the Bible teaches about saving faith. Question 72 of the Larger Catechism. What is justifying faith? The answer is, justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby he, being convinced of his sin and misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assenteth to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receiveth and resteth upon Christ and his righteousness, therein held forth, for pardon of sin, and for the accepting and accounting of his person, righteous in the sight of God for salvation. And then question 73, how doth faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? The answer is, faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God not because of those other graces which do always accompany it or of good works that are the fruits of it, nor as if the grace of faith or any act thereof were imputed to him for his justification, but only as it is an instrument by which he receiveth and applieth Christ and his righteousness." So saving faith, justifying faith is worked in the heart. It's worked in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit of God. It is the instrument by which we receive Christ and his righteousness. Just like your open hand is the instrument by which you receive a gift from someone. Your open hand isn't working for the gift. Your open hand is just receiving that gift. And that is what faith does with regard to the free gift of Christ and his own perfect righteousness. And what is the result of this belief in the heart and confession with the mouth? Paul says, for with the heart one believes and is justified. We've talked about that many times already in the book of Romans. Declared righteous in the sight of God. Pronounced not guilty by the judge of all the earth. Our filthy rags removed and Christ's clean clothes given and put on permanently by faith. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. This is the result stated again. Saved from sin, saved from wrath, saved from hell. Rescued, redeemed. As we sing, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. 
With the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now there's an implication of this when it comes to evangelism. It's important to remember in evangelism that what we want for people is not just for them to confess with their mouths, but also for them to believe with their heart, of course, so that they too can be justified before God and saved from their sin. We don't want false professions of faith. And of course, we can't guarantee that that won't happen. Even those who heard the gospel from Jesus himself, some of them made false professions. Think of Judas. But we don't want to rush people into a decision for Christ. We don't want to pressure them to walk the aisle, as it were, and say the prayer. We don't want to assume people have believed in their heart just because they say something about God with their mouth. We want to take people through the content of the gospel slowly, thoroughly. We want to walk them through it, not race them through it. Asking questions along the way to make sure they understand and praying all along the way that God will give them faith in their heart. So think crockpot, not microwave when it comes to evangelism. Of course, there's going to be times when we only have a few moments with someone. But ordinarily, we want to take our time and go deep and use the Bible and teach them, teach them the gospel. Aim for understanding, aim for agreement and persuasion by the Spirit of God. As it's been said, our evangelism should be urgent, but it doesn't need to be frantic. We should be deliberate, we should be careful, we should be thoughtful. And we should pray, again, not just for confession with the mouth, but for belief in the heart. We're not saved simply by the act of repeating a prayer or reciting a creed. No, true saving faith is about what you believe in your heart. And what you believe in your heart is what you will confess with your mouth. We want to keep that in mind when it comes to our evangelism. Well, that's the first four. Like I said, we'll be more brief on the remaining four. Four number two provides Old Testament proof for four number one. Look at verse 11. Four, the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For the scripture says, in other words, here's proof Here's a proof text from the Old Testament. This is what was taught in the Old Testament, Paul says. And he quotes Isaiah 28, verse 16. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That is, they will not be put to shame on the day of judgment. Rather, they will be vindicated on the day of judgment. As our shorter catechism puts it, believers shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. We won't be put to shame and sent to hell. We'll be raised to eternal glory. In heaven. Everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes in Christ, it says. If you believe in yourself, you'll be put to shame on the day of judgment. If you believe in a false God, you'll be put to shame on the day of judgment. If you believe in the true God and in his son, Jesus Christ, you will be saved on the day of judgment. You won't be put to shame. For the scripture says, that's how we know that's true. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. People may let you down, but God will never let you down. Psalm 146, verses three through six, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. 
When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. That's why we sing together, on Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Everyone who believes in Christ will not be put to shame. Now, the word everyone in verse 11 there triggers for number three about no distinction in the first part of verse 12. The first part of verse 12 explains the everyone in verse 11. Paul says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There is no distinction between persons or among persons, and therefore everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Anyone who believes, all who believe, will not be put to shame. This is what Paul had emphasized back in chapter 3. If you turn back to chapter 3 for just a moment, if you have your Bible in front of you. Chapter 3, starting at verse 21. Paul made this very clear at this point in the letter. Chapter 3, starting at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then if you look down at verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Everyone who believes in Christ will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For, and this is for number four now, second half of verse 12. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is your Lord, then he is your Lord regardless of your ethnic background. God is not the God of Jews only, but of Gentiles also. He's the God of all who believe in Christ. Jesus is not the Lord of Jews only, but of Gentiles also. He's the Lord of all who believe in him. The same Lord is the Lord of all. And look at what Paul says there. He bestows his riches on all who call on him. He bestows his riches on all who call on him. So we all have the same riches as Christians. The riches of salvation. We all have access to the same bank account. Everyone who believes in Christ, we all have, we all have the same riches bestowed on us by Christ. Listen to a few verses about 
these riches of Christ and the riches of our salvation. Paul refers in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, to the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. The unfathomable mine of riches. An unsearchable sum of riches. Paul exclaims later in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. A bottomless ocean of riches are in God and are bestowed on us by God. Paul refers back in chapter 2, verse 4, of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. And some of the riches of those communicable attributes are conveyed to us as we grow in grace, as we become more like Christ. We become more kind, more forbearing, more patient, like God is kind and forbearing and patient. That's part of those riches. And then there's Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is rich in mercy and he bestows the riches of his mercy on undeserving sinners like you and me. And he shows the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us, the likes of us, in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We are rich as Christians, incalculably rich. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We should be content with those riches no matter our circumstances. The rich and famous of the world are so often notoriously discontent with their riches and their fame. But we have every reason to be content with our riches. God bestows his riches not on all who earn them, but on all who call on him. That is, all who call on him in faith. So he's rich, but he's also generous and gracious. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight. It's important to remember that his riches are infinite. So it's not like the more people call on him, the less everyone gets because it's divided among more and more people. It's not like sharing a pizza with someone and then another person joins in and another and yet another, but there's only one pizza. So your part of the pie keeps getting smaller and smaller. No, that's not the case with this. God's riches are infinite. So each portion is also infinite. God bestows his riches on all who call on him. 
for, for number five, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, quoting Joel 2.32. And there's the riches. It's our salvation and everything it includes. Salvation from the guilt and penalty and power of sin now and salvation from the presence of sin when we die or when Christ returns. A resurrected body that will never get sick or feel pain or be disabled or experience death. Salvation from an eternity in hell under the just wrath of God. Salvation from the miseries of a life of sin, a life under the slavery of Satan. Salvation into a life of union and communion with the triune God, experienced now in part and in the future in full and forevermore. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a great missions text, isn't it? All these verses are really. Let's, Let's read them again together with missions in mind. Listen to verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those are the kinds of verses that have the power to propel God's people to the nations, to the ends of the earth, to earth's remotest regions, to take the gospel there, the good news that everyone who believes in Jesus, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These are the kinds of truths that sent the Apostle Paul and his companions on their missionary journeys all around the Mediterranean world. These are the kinds of truths that stirred Hudson Taylor and Adoniram Judson and John Payton and Amy Carmichael and Jim Elliott and his friends and their wives and Mary Slessor and David Livingston and David Brainerd and so many others. These are the kinds of truths that have stirred Sarah Kalshman and the Cuneos and the Makukus and the Zakas and the Kades and others who we've had the privilege of supporting here as a local church. And these are the kinds of truths that are still stirring hearts today, perhaps even yours this morning, to go and take the gospel to foreign lands. For one must believe Christ in the heart and confess Christ with the mouth in order to be justified, in order to be saved. And everyone needs salvation. And everyone lacks salvation apart from Christ. And everyone who calls on the name of Christ will be saved. And as we'll see next time in Romans 10, 14, and 15, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Two more things. I think it's important for us to recognize that the Paul who wrote all these lines is the same Paul who wrote Romans 9. The same Paul who wrote about the reality of election and predestination also wrote about the fact that everyone 
who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the Lord bestows his riches on all who call on him. The election of Romans 9 and the everyone of Romans 10 are not mutually exclusive. They are complementary. They are consistent with one another in the mind of God and in the revealed will of God, which is right in front of us. The call of the gospel goes out to all. The invitation is extended to everyone. We don't distinguish between one person and another person in terms of who gets the invite. And it says on the invite, everyone who believes will be saved. But who will respond to the invitation and come to Christ among those who are dead in their trespasses and sins? It's the elect. Those God calls effectually the vessels of mercy that he has prepared beforehand for mercy. As Acts 13, 48 put it, after the invite was extended to a large crowd in Antioch, it says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So the universality of the invitation and the particularity of election are complementary, not contradictory. Last word. The gospel is for everyone. The invitation is for all. The invite is to be sent to everyone without exception. And we trust God to gather in the elect by the power of his Holy Spirit. As I once heard it put, you will never meet a person who does not need to hear the gospel. You will never meet a person who does not need to hear the gospel. Don't write someone off because of their outward appearance. Everyone, every person needs the gospel. The gospel is for everyone. All need to hear of their sin and all need to hear of the Savior. All need to hear that he bestows his riches on all who call on him, that that is what he promises. These verses make that clear. These verses underscore the glorious inclusivity of the gospel. The gospel is certainly exclusive in a very important sense. Jesus did not say that he was one way to God among many possible ways, and each of us has to find our own way, our own path, our own truth. No, he said in no uncertain terms, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's what Jesus said. There's only one way to God, and that's through Christ. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus, the Son. All other ways are excluded. All other so-called truths are false. All other paths are closed. The gospel is exclusive. The Bible's very clear about that. But it is also wonderfully inclusive, isn't it? Inclusive in the sense that all who repent and believe will be saved. No matter your age, no matter your gender, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your social standing, no matter your personality, the gospel is for introverts and for extroverts. It's for notorious sinners and for quote-unquote respectable sinners. It's for prodigal sons and it's for older brothers. It's for everyone who believes. It's for all who call on the name of the Lord. It's for you. It's for me. 
and for everyone we meet. So let's do all we can to make sure everyone gets an invite. And then trust God to gather in the elect by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for the gospel, for your message about your son and what he did for sinners in his life and death and resurrection and the salvation that is offered to all if they will repent of sin and believe in him. And we know that we are all dead in sin by nature and unwilling and unable to repent and believe because of our sin and therefore we stand in need of your sovereign grace And we pray that you would pour out your sovereign grace on the unbelievers around us. Enable them to believe Christ in their heart and to confess Christ with their mouth. And we thank you for the riches of salvation that we have from you by faith. We pray that you would help us to extend the invitation to all and to trust you to work according to your sovereign will. And Lord, we thank you for enabling us to respond to that invitation and to come to Christ. We pray in his name, amen. Amen. Let's take a minute now during the meditation on the word to think and pray about what we've heard.